This is Tell Me How, the World Bank's infrastructure podcast. In today's special episode, we discuss cybersecurity for more secure outcomes in an increasingly digitized economy. Over the last few years, several articles have been written about whether governments, firms, and others invest enough in cybersecurity. A recent report on the topic explains how, for decades, executives didn't understand the specific issues or the potential costs to their business from cybercrime. As a result, they've underinvested in prevention. And over the years, millions of people have had their credit cards, social security, or other data hacked at companies where you know we shop or bank or even in hospitals. By understanding the incentives and constraints of the various stakeholders in the cybersecurity space, policies can be better designed to protect society from cybercrime. Let's find out how. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, the host of Tell Me How. And today I have as my guest, Professor Tyler Moore from the University of Tulsa Department of Computer Science and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cybersecurity. He has written extensively on security and cybersecurity economics, among other things. Welcome, Tyler. It's very nice to have you with us. Great to be with you, Ramin. So, Tyler, with the digital economy taking off, people, businesses, everybody, governments going online, concerns with cybersecurity are also on the rise. Do you think this is justified? Would you say that there's been an increasing frequency of cyber attacks than, say, five to ten years ago? Well, people are definitely paying more attention. Our economy is becoming a lot more dependent on ICT across all sectors, and cyber criminals are still out there continuing to be a threat. Now, the question about frequency of attacks it's not exactly clear that the frequency of attacks is occurring, but certainly their impacts seem to be increasing. I see. So the impacts are increasing. Why? Well, it t- goes back to how tied our economy is to uh, ICT, right? So we are way more dependent upon the internet functioning than we were 5, 10, 15 years ago. And meanwhile, the outages that may have been a mere nuisance, you know, those 10, 15 years ago now can become mission critical. Do you see at the same time an increasing effort to protect against attacks? And and if so, I'm assuming there, there must be some. And if so, what types of initiatives have been the most popular? Well, absolutely. Leaders, again, are paying a lot more attention to cybersecurity than, than they used to be. And so what we see is a lot more attention and investment being made by organizations to improve their overall cybersecurity. Because let's face it, no company or government wants to be in the news because sensitive data has been hacked. And so there's definitely an awareness to it and a desire to make investments. And so how do they do it? For the most part, organizations are focusing on these cybersecurity investment frameworks. There's a whole range to choose from. Perhaps the most influential is the NIST cybersecurity framework, which sets out a whole series of controls that an organization can adopt uh, in order to uh, mitigate their cybersecurity risk. Really, it's a structured way of deciding how to set out a cybersecurity plan, execute it, and improve it over time. And what does NIST stand for? NIST is the U.S. 
National Institute for Standards and Technology. They are the organization that responsible for all kinds of standards in the United States. But this standard, which was released several years ago, is actually sort of free to use and has seen global adoption. So they're voluntary, right? It's a voluntary mechanism. Actually, uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework sort of rose out of the ashes of a failed mandatory attempt uh, by the, the U.S. Congress to pass legislation to require uh, critical infrastructure sectors to adopt security controls and investments. After that failed, the NIST cybersecurity framework was developed as a set of voluntary guidelines to encourage organizations to make appropriate investments. Are cyber attacks actually materially different from other types of security issues? Yes and no. So, I mean, a security threat is a security threat. It's platform agnostic. Whether a, you know an attacker wants to blow up a building or disrupt and destroy your digital assets, the effect is still a security threat, right? But what's really different here is the nature of digitized information, right? So as soon as we take our information and digitize it, the game has changed. We're no longer storing our corporate secrets uh, or government records and paper files and offices that are protected under lock and key. Now they've been stored as bits. They're costlessly stored, available online, and they can also be easily copied. And so this increases the risk of many of these threats actually succeeding. And then the, the other sort of especially challenging part about it is, is that if someone breaks into uh, your physical enterprise and steals records, the records are gone and you, there's evidence of it occurring. With digital information, it doesn't work that way anymore. Someone can access those bits. They can state, make a copy of that information, and you would never have even necessarily known it occurred. So organizations are being hacked and not finding out for many months or years or even at all that it has occurred. That's really kind of frightening. So first of all, it's costless to keep attacking once you've you know gone through it. And then secondly, no one will know that you've gone in and attacked them. That makes it really frightening. Now, you've also done some stakeholder analysis, Tyler. So how do you think about these various stakeholders, the consumers, government, industry, uh, or the infrastructure sector, electricity companies, for example? Are there different issues they consider? Do they have different incentives when they think about cybersecurity? Absolutely. Every stakeholder has its own interests and response to them. And what we see in cybersecurity is that often they come into conflict. And Critical infrastructure sectors are provide a good example. Electricity is one. Water is another one that's recently come in the news. There was a water treatment plant in Florida that was recently hacked. You might wonder, like, okay, why is it that our critical infrastructure sectors, like electricity grids, like uh, water treatment plants, why are they so vulnerable to attack? Well, you could do some stakeholder analysis and, and explain maybe why this, this occurs. If we go back in time, our infrastructure networks were often completely separated from the internet and IP networks that, that we use for computers and for checking email. But over time, we've seen this increasing convergence so that uh, the networks that were separated become connected. And the reason they do is because it's cheaper to do it, it's more efficient, and it's more convenient to bring those networks together. So if you are the operator of one of those networks, so you're the utility company, you see lots of benefits to bringing those networks together. 
even though it introduces a significant security risk. And if you listen to any security expert, they will tell you that you need to keep those networks physically separated and never allow, say, remote access to to these most sensitive systems. And yet, we know that utilities across the world, across many infrastructure sectors, do connect their systems to to the internet, and they are extremely vulnerable to these attacks. And so why does that happen? Well, the private sector operator of this infrastructure often values the convenience. You compare that to other stakeholders, the consumer in this case. The consumer would very much maybe like to not have their water treatment system be uh, poisoned or their electrical grid be taken down. Obviously, they value the reliability of those systems, but they also can't reliably determine whether or not their utility is actually taking adequate steps. They can't observe it very well, and so they can't reward good behavior versus bad. And finally, governments. For governments, they clearly have a strong interest in maintaining the security and reliability of these critical infrastructure sectors, but they often don't control those systems, and they often lack the expertise because they don't control those systems to be able to mandate the steps that need to be taken. And so as a result, you look at an environment where you have these different stakeholders The stakeholder who controls the system is often the one who makes the decision. In this case, it's the operators. They choose to connect. And unfortunately, we're at heightened risk of attack. That's interesting. But governments also come under attack. So they also make choices about their own systems over which they have control. Exactly. So it is is the case that governments do have some control over, over their own systems. And they can and often do make much more significant security investments uh, to, to try to protect those systems right and so and so on the one hand I, I would I would say that you know overall most governments do try to invest heavily in cybersecurity but they have their own sets of challenges number one is that they uh, do not have the same budgets that exist in the private sector and there's all kinds of evidence that essentially the budget cycles and pr- procurement uh, make it difficult to make the kinds of investments that need to change kind of rapidly in cybersecurity on public sector systems. Uh, And so what we end up seeing is a greater exposure. And then finally, it goes back to the value of the target, right? So often the the government systems are highly valuable to attackers, particularly if those attackers are tied to other nation states who have very significant attack budgets. And so even if you are making those systems more secure, the fact that there is an attacker who is willing to invest more resources to compromise those systems, they will still succeed. Okay, that that's really quite interesting. And this whole idea that incentives matter so much, that, that the economics lens helps understand where we are in terms of how much cybersecurity there is uh, in the economy is, is very important. So could we go through this a bit more? So what types of economic analysis? What types of lens helps helps us to understand how to design cybersecurity policies? Excellent question. I think economics starts in what we were just talking about, which is that you have to think that the attackers and the defenders both operate strategically. So, you know, and, you know, I sit in a computer science department, I teach uh, an information security class, and, you know, you might not think that you need to be instructing those students to think about the incentives and the the strategy of the different players involved, but we just like to focus on the technology. Well, it's about so much more than the the technology. What matters 
is that you have the interests and incentives of the defenders. What incentive do they have to make adequate investments in security combined with the incentives and interests of the attackers? Do they want to go after a particular target versus another? You know, the entirety of the internet and ICT infrastructure, there, there are in a practically infinite number of targets, but not all of them are equally valuable. And so you, when deciding how you're going to invest in your cybersecurity budget, you need to consider whether or not you are likely to be a target. So that's the, that's the very first economic step. But it goes much deeper than that. Where it then leads into is thinking about the market failures that are often at play. So there are two market failures that significantly affect cybersecurity, information asymmetries and externalities. And if you'd like, I can go through each of those. Yes, please. I was just about to ask you to do that. Okay. So information asymmetries. The classic example of a market for information asymmetries is the used car market. If you are trying to go buy a car, you go to a used car lot and you see five cars and they all uh, are the same make and model and mileage. on On the surface, they look to be equivalent. Yet you know that there is, in fact, variable quality there. Some of those cars have been very well maintained. They're cherries. Uh, and they would run great and drive a very long time. Other cars are lemons. That you drive them off the lot, they're going to you know belch smoke and leak oil everywhere. And so, uh, so um, Tyler, so you have cherries and lemons, and what you actually mean by information asymmetries is that the people who are engaged on two sides of the transaction, who buy and sell, have different kinds of information. I just wanted to clarify that. So they make absolutely. suboptimal decisions. Yes. Exactly. So in this case, the the seller of the car, the used car dealer, they have a pretty good idea of the quality of the cars they're selling. However, the buyers don't. They, they don't know if their information is at a deficit. And so um, the interesting thing about a market for uh, a, with asymmetric information is that the market clearing price ends up being at the low quality goods. The market ends up getting flooded with the lower quality goods. In this case, the lower... The uh, lemon cars are all that you can buy on the lot. And this plays out considerably when we think about cybersecurity. So but why, why about- does that happen? That happens because the buyer doesn't know whether the car is good or not. So he's only going to assume that it's bad and try to pay the lower price. And then the seller, what's the seller? What are the seller's incentives? Okay, yeah. So the dynamic at play is that, as, just as you say, the buyer of the car only has information that can't distinguish good cars from bad. And so they're not going to pay the premium for the good car because they don't know if they're getting in the good or the bad. Mm-hmm. So they're only willing to pay the lower price. And a seller in that market will look and say, okay, people are only willing to pay the lower price. So the seller is only willing to provide cars at the lower, lower quality goods. So in the car market, that means that this people who have the nice cars don't sell them. And the only people who do are the people who have the lemons. Uh, in the software market, what this means is we're trying to understand the quality of software, for example. How secure is it? Does it have vulnerabilities that could be exploited? Did the software developers go through a rigorous process of identifying and eliminating bugs uh, beforehand? This is very hard to to determine as a buyer of that software, but it is also very expensive to do. And so what you end up with is a, is a world in which the buyer of software doesn't want to pay a premium for the more secure 
software because they can't actually reliably tell if that's what they're getting. And the sellers, in turn, don't devote resources to make their products as secure as they could. And so what you instead see is a market environment in which things that can be observed are prioritized. How easy to use the software is, how pretty the interface is, how cheap it is, what the cost is. And though that's what gets prioritized, security is de-emphasized. And the net result is though, even though we would all like to have more secure software, the market won't deliver it. Okay, that, that's very interesting. What about the problem of externalities you mentioned? I guess that means we're going to be talking about the impact of a, of a single firm's decision on the overall security environment, like individual firms make the decision and it affects the overall environment. Yeah, so the classic case for externalities is environmental pollution. Insecurity are something called botnets. So a botnet is a collection of many thousands of computers, typically, which have all been compromised, and they're under the control of a single criminal actor, often called a botnet herder, herding lots of little uh, infected computers together. And what the botnet herder can do is issue instructions to these compromised computers to do whatever they want. Now... One possibility would be for the the botnet herder to just harm that computer itself, just steal their passwords, do bad things only to that host, in which case there's no externality. But what actually happens in practice is the botnet herder uses those computers to harm other people. They can use that computer to send email spam, to launch denial of service attacks on other on other computers, to try to compromise other computers. In this case, the harm is directed elsewhere. And so what that means is that the computers that are compromised in the botnet, they often have no idea that they are even in the botnet. They're not experiencing any adverse consequences. They're just the host to carry out harm elsewhere. And in fact, I I can state pretty confidently that at least some of your listeners have a computer at home that is or has recently been in a botnet because it's, again, not not observable and, and and they try to keep you from seeing it happen. Is it that prevalent? Yes, absolutely. This is why it's an economics problem is on the one hand, because there is no strong incentive for the host with the vulnerable computer to fix the problem because the harm isn't being directed to them. It's being directed elsewhere. And so so that's a problem. And we see this time and again, which leads to underinvestment in security. All right. So all these incentive problems lead to an underprovision of security in the market. Less security then would be optimal if we were to consider everyone's welfare. But then what sort of policy fixes should one be thinking of? The good news is that you know we've identified some market failures, information asymmetries and externalities, and this motivates the need for a policy intervention uh, to try to correct for them. And you know there, there are a few standard approaches you might try, and many of them can be put into two buckets. You have ex-ante safety regulation and ex-post liability. So ex-ante safety regulation uh, is used whenever the harm is potentially so great that you want to prevent it from happening in the first place. You don't want your electrical grid to be taken down by an attacker, so you can impose some rules that would mandate some level of security investment to fix a problem. And so Um, This is certainly a possibility, but uh, one of the unfortunate realities has been that it's been very hard to regulate 
internet industries in order to uh, improve security. So um, while it is available, it's not extremely widespread and and only affects certain certain limited sectors. So on the ex post side, what you do here is you say, okay, we're not going to require you to adopt any certain standards or make any security investments. We think you should. And the way that you try to, to fix this problem is you say, if something goes wrong, if there is an attack that causes harm, you can assign liability for that harm to the party who, who committed the problem. So this is a way essentially of providing a punishment if things go wrong, which should encourage the actors to make better investments. And so this is possible. Uh, but again, we have, we have a bit of an issue in that in the software space, software liability is essentially a non-starter and has been for decades and that you uh the, why is that the why is that well so there's a couple of reasons um you know you could say it's effective lobbying but there there is there is a challenge in terms of how do you design secure software you know this, this sort of pains me to say as uh someone in a computer science department we don't do a very good job explaining how to build secure software that can be completely free of vulnerabilities. And so we essentially train people to go out into the world and build software that powers our entire global economy, but the software that, that we train people to build is riddled with bugs. And it's always gonna have bugs, no matter even, even if you do the right things and try to test for them, remove them in advance, it's an imperfect and incomplete process. So there's always a chance that there will be remaining vulnerabilities that could could be exploited. One consequence yeah. of this is that is that is that you don't have organizations that are assigned liability for fault when these bugs when these bugs are discovered. Yes, I hear all coders talk about bugs endlessly, so I understand that part. <laughs> now, in terms of ex ante mandated rules, why I didn't quite understand why they did not work. Is it because they couldn't be implemented for some reason? So on the one hand, there have been some examples of sectoral-specific ex-ante regulations being deployed, but it's, it's, ten, it's tended to be on a fairly narrow basis. So in the United States, after the Enron scandal, there was uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley financial regulations which were passed. A key part of that was trying to ensure the integrity of financial reporting by public companies. And so Again, what does this have to do with security? It turns out quite a lot because as part of being able to ensure that you are accurately reporting financial statements, you need to, you need to be able to ensure that the data on which it is based has not been compromised. And so this has led to a whole suite of security requirements being placed on publicly traded companies in order to comply with these regulations. So in that sense, we have not, not a complete um, requirement to invest in cybersecurity, but publicly traded companies do need to invest in cybersecurity controls specific to complying with something like Sarbanes-Oxley. And if you were, if you, um, were around in the early 2000s when Sarbanes-Oxley was first passed, there were many years when those in the business community objected to Sarbanes-Oxley saying it was way too onerous 
uh, to comply with these rules, right? And so, and one piece of that is, is the cost of security compliance. And so in general, the main argument against ex ante safety regulation, it's always, it's too onerous and costly. And so it really comes down to what you, what you prioritize, to what extent are, do you accept that you need to impose these costly uh, interventions to take adequate protections? And so that's always going to be a trade-off and people will come at it a different way. All right. So if you're saying that neither ex-ante nor ex-post regulation really work, what then? So I think we should look at targeted interventions that directly go after these two key market failures. The first being information asymmetries, right? And so the best way to combat information asymmetries is to increase transparency. And we've seen this already done through uh, information disclosure uh, regulations and laws, right? So uh, beginning with the state of California in 2002, we had a data breach notification law. Uh, And what that meant is anytime there's been a breach of personal information, there's now an obligation to tell the consumer that, that that has occurred. This was actually modeled after earlier regulations at the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States for something called the toxic release inventory. So anytime certain toxic chemicals were released into the environment, a law requires that that be disclosed so that people are aware. There's no further penalties apart from this information having to be transmitted are required. But it turns out that's a very powerful tool to make people, number one, learn how prevalent something is, but also try to prevent it from happening at all. Yes, that's so going to be my ins- next question. That's yes. right. Yeah, please. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, Go ahead. So, so in security, <laughs> the challenge often is how can we measure things better? How can we understand the true magnitude of risk, how prevalent, thing, how prevalent these risks are, and how effective our responses can be? So take data breaches. Before these data breach notification laws were in place, we didn't know how prevalent companies were in losing our personal information all the time. Unfortunately, we now know that they do it a lot. (laughs) And it's because of these these requirements to disclose. Now, there's many other cybersecurity threats beyond beyond data breach um, that don't have this, this disclosure requirement that we know about as being possible, but we don't have the same level of knowledge of how prevalent they are, and we don't have the same association with sort of the cost of having to, to share. And so I think I would start there in terms of a policy intervention to try to improve our knowledge to mitigate this information asymmetry. Yes, you know, in many fields and um, in economics, in many markets, these are very important tools, information disclosure requirements. I mean, think of capital markets and firms listing. Um, they need to disclose they're, how they're doing, their profits and losses. So and there's one other area yes. I think is maybe underappreciated is the role that a government can play in coordinating. So there's this coordination effect. Mm-hmm. So I talked about the NIST cybersecurity framework already, which is a voluntary arrangement. Companies are not compelled to use it, but the government developed it they brought together private stakeholders and, and made this framework, and now it's a common framework that organizations can now use. And that, that has actually been quite powerful. And governments can bring different parties together in a way that no one else can. And I think this is actually a very effective policy instrument that should be used more. 
I'll give you one more example. There's something called a bill of materials. Uh, so we know about bills of materials. Anytime you purchase physical goods, there's often a bill of materials talking about the ingredients that exist and the, the different components of the product. We don't have a bill of material requirement for software. You, 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 buy, you buy a piece of software, you kind of don't know what's in it. Well, there has been a push to try to create something called a software bill of materials, um, where you could I identify the software libraries and the different types of code that's present. And there's been an, an effort led uh, by the U.S. Department of Commerce to adopt a software bill of materials standard where companies could at least know what is in the software they're buying in terms of which, which libraries they're dependent upon. So if there's a vulnerability that's later discovered, it can be fixed. Is this so, is under consideration now? It, it's, it's happening now, right? I and see. so it's And so it's not something that is going to be mandated per se. It's not saying every piece of software that's produced will have to do this, but the government has played a key role in, in setting up this framework, making it actually become a reality, and it naturally solves one of the key information asymmetry problems, right? It, it right. helps us, it helps you know something about the software itself. So these, I think, are the kinds of sort of more innovative policy interventions that I think could make a real dent in this very big problem that we're going to have with us for a long time. All right. So you've spoken about voluntary guidelines, some mandatory requirements on information disclosure, and you think all of these will affect incentives enough to have some movement in this field. But is information disclosure enough? Are there other things that could be done? I think the best thing you can do is assign responsibility aka liability for problems and for an attack when it occurs. But you have to be smart about how you assign that liability. And so I think it's important to tend to try to focus on what I would call the least cost avoider. And so, you know, we, we, we see examples where people are saying, you know, that we should assign liability to say consumers, say if, if you if you were to, you know, be careless with your password and, and you get attacked, then maybe it's the, the consumer should be held responsible. I think that's misguided because there's a, a significant limit to what we as consumers can do. However, there are, there are often other stakeholders within the system who are in a much better position to, to fix things. And so the best example I'll point to is internet service providers, the company that you get your internet connection from. They have security teams and they are often in a very good position to identify which of their customers have been hacked and are placed in these botnets I was speaking about. So the reason they can is because they sort of sit as a mediator between their customers and all of the different spots on the internet that we try to communicate with. And they can quite readily detect the patterns of anomalous traffic and identify when, whenever a customer um, has been infected. So they're in a really good position to do something about it. Right now, they don't. Why don't they? Because of the externality. The harm is not affecting them. And so I think you can assign liability to a, a key intermediary like an ISP to try to correct and internalize that externality when it's present. Has that been successful ever, assigning this uh, liability to third party? In context other than cybersecurity, sure, all the time. One example is anytime you're out driving in a car, you, you see... There's often a commercial vehicle 
where you, there's to be a bumper sticker saying, how's my driving? Call this number to report. Yes. Well, that, that, that is an example of indirect intermediary liability that, that works quite well. So you have someone, an employee who is using, driving a company car. If they're driving recklessly and they cause an accident, then you know, on the one hand, you could hold them responsible. But there are some downsides. One is that, well, they, have, they don't have as deep of pockets as an, uh, their employer might, and so, but they can cause real harm. And so these liability regimes are in place where you say, okay, we assign the responsibility to the employer. And so the, because the employer is in a good position to monitor their employees' say driving performance and safety record, and they can influence it. And so, so we do see this work in the offline space. Could it work in the online space? I think it could. I think the ISPs is the best example. Um, we have seen that there have been some examples of the government playing a coordinating role to encourage this voluntarily. So several years ago, the Federal Communications Commission brought together large internet service providers to try to work on this problem and come up with responses that they could make to deal with these botnets. And it worked, but only to a point because, you know, the ISPs listened and played very nicely when they were having the meetings um, and they said they were going to do great things. But, you know, the pressure is off and there's no mandatory response to do anything about it. And so we're kind of back to where we were a few years later. And so I think eventually you got to have some teeth on these requirements. Okay. So just talked about third party liability, but could we go back a bit to assigning liability to the parties directly involved? You said consumers can't pay for for this extra security that might be needed. What about some other firms? Uh, what about financial firms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to an extent, you could say maybe in the financial sector is a case where this actually sort of works, you know, at, at least in part, you know, online banking fraud, this is something that by in most countries, the regulations stipulate that when there, whenever there is online banking fraud of some form, the customer cannot be held liable unless they can be shown that it was their fault. Uh, and so this has encouraged financial institutions to make very significant investments to try to minimize and manage that, that particular risk. And so I think, I think we do see particular instances of this. The real challenge is that once you get beyond the financial sector, and these individual sectors, you know, we have cybersecurity and cyber insecurity affecting all sectors of the economy. Yes. And we don't, at this point, have a robust response across across our economy to, to fix these challenges. But I think if we're going to start somewhere, you want to start by at the enterprise level. You want to, you want to first empower enterprises to be able to improve their cybersecurity. So you incur, you devise these security frameworks, you give resources to help make it easier for them to adopt these uh, changes. And then perhaps eventually you do need to look at more the stick side of the equation and, and consider assignments of liability where you know insufficient resources have been uh, assigned to cybersecurity in an organization that gets hacked, for, for instance. Yes, I just want to go back to, I think many regulations may indeed have to be taken at the specific sectoral level. And I'm going back to my favorite example of the financial sector, because I don't have to pay when there's credit card fraud. And I'm just wondering if, if that's the case in all countries. 
So it varies. It varies a lot um, because every country has their own financial regulators. And, and you know, it goes back to one of the first classic examples of economics applying to security. You know, in the uh, 1990s, the British banks had very different regulatory environments and rules than, than U.S. banks around this very problem. So we had, at that time, there were significant rates of ATM card fraud. Uh, people copying ATM cards and emptying other people's bank accounts. In the U.S., the regulations have long been clear. When this happens, the bank has to pay. Whereas in the U.K., banks could blame the customer. They could essentially say that the, assert that the customer was careless with protecting their information, and then the onus was on the customer to, to prove otherwise, which is often impossible. And what's interesting is we ended up seeing much higher rates of fraud in the United Kingdom than in the United States because the incentive to invest and try to eradicate this uh, fraud was much weaker in the United Kingdom because they could they could share the losses with consumers. And so it's instructive to see examples like that. Are we moving in the right direction to get to better outcomes? I think we can. I, I think on the current path, I'm not, I'm not sure that we are. I, th I think that there, I think there is uh, probably far too great of an acceptance of the status quo because it certainly suits the cybersecurity industry. It's, they, they want to be able to increase their revenues and sell more products. And um, frankly, I think they've gotten away with not having to have the pressure of evaluating their products for their effectiveness for a bit too long. And I think if we're going to change that, we, we need to essentially demand um, more accountability for the effectiveness of our products. But to get there, I think we need, we need government to play a coordinating role. And so one way to do that is for governments to take a stronger role in collecting relevant data on not only how prevalent breaches can be and different security threats are, but also tracking the effectiveness of, of security interventions. You know, right. um, there are proposals uh, to develop things like bureaus of cyber statistics uh, in different countries. And, and I think um, that's that could be a reasonable way forward. I don't think we're going to get out of this until we add a healthy dose of empiricism to the problem. Let's talk about data privacy versus cybersecurity. Are they related? Because, uh, you know, some may say they are. And in what way? And then are there differences across countries? In many ways, privacy and security are very closely related. And where they come most closely related is when you think about protecting it against breaches of private information. Right? So we've talked about data breach notification laws, which are required anytime personal information is accidentally shared or deliberately shared. And so privacy in that sense, maintaining privacy of your personal sensitive information is absolutely part of what you would want to do for a cybersecurity uh, effort. And when you think about this, the approaches to data privacy in places like the United States versus the EU are wildly different. In the United States, we have a very sectoral approach where well, you have rules that would govern particular types of information. So we have HIPAA, which regulates health data. We have FERPA, in my case, which rep represents educational personal information. And 
if you're not covered by one of those particular sectors, then anything goes, basically. Really? Um, Whereas in the, the EU, through the GDPR, takes a much more comprehensive approach. All personal information needs to be protected. So they're much more comprehensive in that respect, but they're also much more attuned to taking an ex-ante approach. So you have strong requirements up front. So the GDPR talks about data minimization. Essentially, companies and entities are expected to significantly limit the amount of data that they maintain, that's personal information, because that will hopefully limit the scope of future harm. So, So there's a lot of steps that have to be taken up front to make it less likely that a breach occurs. And interestingly, the GDPR does have a data breach notification component to it, which is quite different than how it's done in the United States. So in the United States, well, it's all state-based. So there's 48 or so different ones. Goodness gracious. One thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in nearly all cases, the consumer has to be notified. In the EU's case, anytime there's a data breach, the regulator has to be notified. And only if there is significant harm does the consumer also have to be notified. And so what we see is in some, in many cases, the breaches aren't actually publicly disclosed, which satisfies companies who don't want their dirty laundry being aired, for sure, and also might encourage them to disclose more to the regulator because they, don't, they won't necessarily be punished through public shaming. Okay, so there's a good side. At least they're disclosing more. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, it's, it's an empirical question whether, whether they're, whether they're going to be disclosing more. I think you would expect that that would happen. And I think as we think about where else we might use breach notification or data disclosure requirements, I think it makes sense to not always require public disclosure. Because in the case of personal consumer information, then you need to notify the consumer. So it's sort of, I think, largely unavoidable to report. But in other areas, um, you know, maybe intrusions into their electrical grid or other critical utilities. Maybe you don't, maybe you need to disclose that to your regulator, but unless there is a direct impact on out- an outage or something like that, then maybe you don't have to disclose it publicly. And so, I mean, so I think you could craft it in such a way that would encourage broader disclosure of these cybersecurity risks without essentially scaring organizations away from trying to not wanting to say anything. That's a very good point. Some very good insights there, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing your opinions with us and for teaching us so much. Thank you, Tyler. No problem. Thank you. Well, listeners, we learned that designing a cybersecurity system that works well is rather challenging. Importantly, incentives matter. And there's a role for both the private sector as well as for government in building a solid system. Private initiatives alone, with each firm or each individual taking their own decisions on cybersecurity investments based on the information available to them, do not deliver the best outcomes. This is because the market for cybersecurity has two important market failures that of asymmetric information and externalities. Information on specific products and risks are not equally well known by everyone, 
and a single firm's or a single individual's decisions or actions can affect many others. So what do you do? A mix of ex-ante regulation, often composed of standards or guidelines, and ex-post regulations, which usually determine liability, that is, who should pay once you've had an attack, is needed. And we discussed a number of these today. Thank you for listening and bye for now. You can find more information about the podcast on worldbank.org forward slash tell me how. If you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms. This episode was recorded in April 2021. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.